Good morning. Uh, my name's Phil King, um, and as Jesse's already said this morning, he's been away at a pastoral retreat, and so I volunteered to um, deliver this morning's message for us. Um, and we're going to continue looking through Ecclesiastes, as we've read, and Last week we heard from chapter 6 uh, where you know, we, we heard about um, enjoying God's daily gifts and this week we're just following straight through. So we're looking at chapter 6 verses 10 to 12 and then on the first 14 verses of chapter 7. Um, I've handed out a bit of a road map for you. Um, if you've um, seen that, there were some at the front door as you came in. Um, but first there's a bit of an introduction. Many of you would um, that don't know me, I, I normally wear a beard. I've, been, I've had a beard on for, I don't know, the last 10 to 12 years or so, um, and I've shaved it off, and I've grown this magnificent moustache. Um, I love having a beard, but every November I, um, I shave it off, I have a fresh start, and I, I grow a moustache to raise funds. Um, these are some of my other moustaches that I've grown. Um, some have raised more money than others. Um, some have embarrassed my family more than others. Um, I don't get, really get embarrassed by that myself, but it's just what I love doing. But the reason I love doing it is because we raise funds for um, men's cancer, uh, but also for uh, mental health as well and suicide prevention. Um, there's a statistic around that um, a man every minute dies of suicide and also uh, 25, uh, men live five years younger than women. Um, so men's health is something that I'm really passionate about. And, um, and so, yeah, Movember's a good way to um, start the conversation and to raise funds for these things. The reason I've talked about this this morning, I guess, and started off this way, partly for a bit of an introduction, but also this relates to what we're going to talk about today. Um, when life doesn't go the way you think it's going to go, you have to work out what you're going to do. Um, I asked Drew if I could use this photo this morning. Um, he took this out on his farm, on, um, well, he published it on Facebook on the 30th of September, and it shows a hailstorm sort of over the Fitzner farm. Um, this is not what you want to see a couple of weeks before harvest, and this was a series of storms that rolled over at the end of, all, uh, end of September. And then things haven't got better. So far this November, we've had 70 mils of rain in the Griffith district. Um, to most of us, wet weather's an inconvenience. But if you're preparing for a grain harvest, this rain has significantly impacted the quality of the crop. Uh, this rain has just reduced the ability to even harvest that crop. And the flow-on effect is reduced income and all that means for running a business. When life doesn't go the way you think it's going to go, you have to work out what you're going to do. Um, before we go much further, I'd just like to dedicate this time together in God uh, in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for providing this opportunity for me to speak to your people that's gathered here this morning. Thank you for giving me these words to speak. And I ask, Lord, that you might put aside all our distractions from our minds and allow us to concentrate on this passage this morning. And I ask that your Holy Spirit might be present here and it might calm the hearts and minds of those who call you Lord. Amen. So the, the working title that I'd um, developed for this sermon this morning was How to Deal with Adversity. But as I started to work through this passage and look through these verses, the theme for the entire book of Ecclesiastes was sparkling in the passage. Um, it's like glitter spilt on the floor. You know, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And it's just there. Um, and it gets on everything. Um, and that, that theme is um, God is in control. I'm going to pose it as a question. God is in control? Um, and I want to start with a little bit of housekeeping as well. 
Um, so first things about some terminology that I'm going to use this morning. I'm going to refer to the author of Ecclesiastes as the teacher. Um, there's plenty of evidence around that might suggest that Solomon wrote the um, book of Ecclesiastes, but um, in the passage and in, in the book, he refers to himself as the teacher. So that's what I'm going to do this morning. So when you hear me say the teacher, I'm talking about the author of Ecclesiastes, um, about the verses in the passage this morning, uh, but also about verses, other verses in the, um, the book of Ecclesiastes. So when life doesn't go the way you think it's going to go, you have to work out what you're going to do. There's been periods in my life that have not gone how I've expected them. These have been stressful moments. These have been periods of adversity. Some of them last just a, a short day or two. Some of them can have um, some you know, life-changing impacts and change the course of your life. And some of you listening this morning might be going through some adversity that might seem impossible to bear. And I don't even begin to imagine what you're going through in your life right now. But we've got an interesting 25 minutes ahead of us this morning. And we're going to set the scene of, of what this passage says. I'd like you to think about this famous quote. Um, in this world, nothing is certain but... Any guesses? Yep, death and taxes. Death and taxes. In this world, nothing is certain but death and taxes. This quote comes from a letter that Benjamin Franklin wrote to the French scientist uh, Jean-Baptiste Leroy in 1789. And interestingly, he was actually writing about the American Constitution, which had just been adopted at that time. And so I want to say at the outset of the, um, this message this morning, this passage makes a lot of mention of death, um, particularly in the mindset of inevitability. Uh, this is hard for us. This is something that we don't like to dwell on or consider. Uh, this is something that might be really raw for us right now, might be simmering right under the surface. It could be something that you've been dealing with for the past few months, something that you might have been dealing with over years, many years. But the teacher wants to tell us about the situations that we're facing this morning. He, he wants us to, to look through um, this passage and really think about the inevitability of what's going on. You might have spotted a verse or heard the verse when Andrew read the passage out earlier and in a way it sets the tone for our message this morning. The verse is Ecclesiastes 7, 2, um, the second part, and it says, For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Wow, that's the tone of this morning's passage. That's pretty full on. It basically states the obvious. Death is a reality, uh, a certainty. But when we don't take life as seriously as we should, we might forget about the inevitability of what happens to us all. But I need to add here, don't be preoccupied with death because that's abnormal. Psalm 90 verse 12 puts it, probably puts it a better way. And uh, the psalmist writes, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Fortunately, this passage isn't all about death. It's got some other stuff in there as well. There's verses about wisdom, verses about laughter, about money, inheritance and extortion. Like I said, we're in for quite a journey this morning. We're going to go through all these things. The passage we're looking at can be broken basically down into three parts. And I'm just going to go through from the top to the bottom. And if you've got it there in front of you in your Bibles or on your apps, that's great. Uh, part one, we're looking at chapter six, verses 10 to 12, and we're going to see five questions being asked by the teacher. And our passage then progresses to a series of things that are, are better than other things. Um, how to be better off, that's part two. And finally, part three, we draw to the conclusion with some thoughts on wisdom 
and a proposition for us to consider what God has done in verses 13 and 14. So part one, questions without answers. The first question that's being asked here in this passage could be summarised as, why bother? Isn't life predestined? The idea in verse 10 of giving a name to something is fixing its character. And this also states what each thing is. What are we going on about here? This reflects that that God is our creator God. He's responsible for the world that we live in. He's provided everything that we have. And he gave everything its name. Day, night, sky, earth, light, darkness. He, He gives us our name. We are man, named as after Adam in Genesis, and this means from the earth, and in Genesis 2, chapter 7. God declares in Genesis 3:19 that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, so why bother? You know, isn't life predestined? The thing is, God can accomplish his divine purposes with or without our cooperation, but he invites us to work with him. We accept the names that he's given things because he is the author. He's the one in authority. Sin is sin. Obedience is obedience. Truth is truth. We can't change these things. And the verse says, what humanity is has been known. This leads us to the second question. Why disagree with God? We can't win, can we? Why could we even think that we could dispute God's sovereign order of the world? The teacher tells us that we can't contend with someone who is stronger. We shouldn't see this in a negative view, though. This isn't about God flexing his muscles to control us. That's not what's happening here. It's more about God giving us free will, and what he desires from us more than anything is for us to worship him. Our greatest freedom comes when we are lovingly lost in the will of God. Our Father in heaven does not feel threatened when we question him when we debate him, or even when we wrestle with him, so long as we love his will and we want to please him. The third question in the passage, does talking solve any problems? We can't argue with God, we've just talked about that, and some translations, and I've prepared this sermon using the ESV, so thankful that you read from the ESV um, there, Andrew, but um, the NIV um, doesn't have all of these words. But in the ESV, it says, the more words, the more vanity. And it follows the idea that just adding more and more words can add to the problem. Paul picks up in this idea in Romans 9 verse 20. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? This is where we need the word of God and the wisdom that he alone can give us to guide us through these sorts of issues. The fourth question Who knows what is good for us? The teacher has posed this as a rhetorical question to turn our mind back to God. Only God knows what is good for us. Our days on this planet pass like a shadow, a short-lived breath. Our life is fleeting when compared to the entire passage of time. We think about this and we start to feel this sense of inevitability, this sense of death and taxes, this certainty that we mentioned in the introduction. We know shadows can move quickly. They're here one second, they're gone the next. A shadow lacks substance. And this is what the teacher is bringing into our mind. And we come to the end of verse 12 with this final question. Does anyone know what's coming next? Nobody except God knows what the future holds. It's futile to speculate that there's an inevitable uncertainty in living life. 
If there's one thing we've learned through 2020 and 2021, we cannot possibly begin to expect to predict what's going to happen next. We can't begin to expect it. We, we, bushfires, floods, pandemics. One thing is certain, we can't be certain about what's going to happen next. We're not in control here. You might have seen that fridge magnet that says, the grand essentials to happiness in this life are something to do, someone to love, and something to hope for. This is what we have in Jesus Christ. Life under the sun can be monotonous and empty, but if we include God in our lives, life is God's gift for us to enjoy. We've got to accept what he gives us, and then we can enjoy it while we can. This brings us into part two, start of chapter seven. This year, the band Imagine Dragons released their fifth studio album, uh, Mercury Act One, and, our, and we've been listening to it in our family. Um, this first song, My Life, has the chorus, I'm running out of my mind, is this really my life? I'm running out of time, is this really my life? My life. Sounds better when they sing it, but that's the, that's the chorus of the song. Um, humanity has been posturing this question for a millennia, is this really my life? I'm running out of time. The second part of our passage this morning begins to give us some answers to the, the questions that the teacher's discovering. Um, I'll just say that again. The second part of our passage begins to give us some of the answers that the teacher has discovered when considering those questions that were posed in the first part. Verses 1 to 10 give us a series of proverbs that list one thing that's better than another. These aren't really apparent as we read them. They're not like um, likes and dislikes. There's one thing better than another. And many of these are being poetically conceived in order to offer a play on words. That It's a little bit lost in translation, but they still guide us through what's happening. So I'm going to draw that out as we go through this, but we'll start to see this how to be better off idea as it comes through. Sorrow is better than laughter, number one. It's not immediately obvious. Verses one to four, the teacher says, a good name is better than fine perfume. The day of death is better than the day of birth. The house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. And sorrow is better than laughter. These proverbs are written with this play on words. Um, the, the word na um, name, anointment, um, sorry, name is shem and ointment or perfume in the NIV. Ointment is shemen. Um, the teacher isn't about talking about living a gloomy lifestyle. Um, he really wants us to stop and think about the reality of life. The beginning of life on the day of birth, this is the first step to witnessing the tears of the oppressed, the injustice in the world. We're being exposed to sin and pain. On the day of death, we remember the life that's been lived. There's no more pain. And with the eyes of grace, we can fully grasp eternity and what's promised to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, a friend of mine, as I was talking about this passage with him, he said it's like a graduation. You know, all that stuff that's been going on in life and then we can graduate as believers to heaven and we can, we can be with our God in heaven. While this grace promise isn't a reality for the teacher in the Old Testament, he talks about the importance of a good name, which leads to the reputation that is important. And a good reputation is one that is God-honouring. So while we might prefer laughter to sorrow, the teacher's already said in verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 2 of Ecclesiastes that laughter is foolish and a pleasure and of pleasure and what use is it? This is the kind of laughter that he's, this is the kind of laughter that he's talking about in passage. Now he said earlier in um, chapter 3, 4, there is a time to laugh, 
but not frivolous laughter, not laughing every, every occasion, not a madness that exhibits a lack of self-control. Verse 3 in our reading says, uh, frustration, sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. A sad face is good for the heart. We get a glimpse of what this means when Jesus preached, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted in Matthew 5 verse 4. And in Luke 6 21, blessed are you who weep for you will laugh. And Jesus goes on to talk about a reward in heaven. You might have heard that phrase that time heals all wounds. I don't really subscribe to that idea. Uh, um, and when it comes to grief, I, re I was recently shown this image, which I think explains how we deal with grief much better. Uh, people tend to think that the grief might shrink over time, but reality, re in reality what I think is happening is that we actually grow around grief, uh, and that's what we do. Um, time doesn't really heal all wounds. It's always there, but we, we have to learn how to deal with it. Rebuke is better than praise. In verses 5 and 6, um, the teacher's contrasting the wise and the fools. The rebuke here is constructive criticism with a purpose to correct behaviour that might be questionable. And we've got some more play on words here. In Hebrew, this is evident where song is shur, pot is sur, and thorns are shurim. So this play on words tells us why these words have been used to describe this. We can appreciate the imagery as well, the, the crackling of thorns in a fire under a pot, the dry, hollow sounds as the thorn bush burns loudly, but doesn't really offer any real heat. The words of the verse are, are more like those dense logs of an old river gum that can burn for hours and provide warmth. Uh, Proverbs 12 verse... Uh, Proverbs 12 Verse 1 is another passage which gives us a very similar meaning uh, and is quite self-explanatory. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Straight out of the Bible. That's, you, can't, you can't really explain that anymore, can I? That's what it says. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. Whoever hates correction is stupid. The next one that we're looking at, the long haul is better than the shortcut. The teacher continues to consider the wise person and the fool. He sees the temptation of, exor of exhaustion to the wise... Ah, I've got to get that... Get my words right. Exhorting um, to the wise person. There's the temptation to find the easiest path to get what they want. Someone might be able to get what they want through the use of a bribe or extorting someone. And the teacher tells us this shortcut turns the wise man to a fool. The teacher goes on to tell us that it's far better to wait patiently for God to work out his will for us. The end of the thing is understood to be the outcome. And it, it might be, we might be familiar with that saying, all's well that ends well. When we put verse 8 together in our passage this morning, we see that the patient in spirit are in it for the long haul. The beginning of sin leads to a terrible end, death. But if God is at the beginning then we can claim Romans 8.28 for ourselves and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is a really hard verse in the Bible and we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him. This is not to say that we're going to understand what God's purpose is, but in submission and obedience to God, the teacher reminds us that patience is better than pride, the end of the matter is better than the beginning. So when adversity strikes, when life doesn't go the way you think it's going to go, you have to work out what you're going to do. 
And the teacher says, bear it patiently and wait for the outcome. God has his purpose. We can't begin to imagine what that might be. And it might not even be a purpose on earth. Bad stuff happens. It just happens on this earth. Sins on this earth and bad stuff happens. But while you wait, this is verse 9, don't be quick to anger. Flying off the handle, losing your cool, exploding with with anger, that's not going to help anyone. This can be hard. It's much easier to say than putting it into practice. In the heat of the moment, you might say something you'll regret. It's worth practicing not saying anything. Training your tongue not to respond. James reminds us in chapter 1, verse 19, that everyone who is quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. This is something that I still have a lot of work to do. Today is better than yesterday. Verse 10 allows our passage to take a little turn to give us some thought to the things we might say if we become impatient. You've heard people say um, they long for the good old days. It's been said that the the good old days are a combination of a a bad memory and a good imagination. The good old days. (laughs) The past cannot be changed. Tomorrow might not come, so make the most of today. You would have seen, well, if you're my age, you would have seen the movie The Dead Poet Society. And it made that phrase carpe diem. It made that phrase famous. We know what it means. It means seize the day. And it comes from a poem. What it doesn't mean is ignore the past and not prepare for the future. We still need to do these. But carpe diem means don't be paralyzed by yesterday or fearful of tomorrow. Carpe diem means seize the day. Um, There's a poet... um, Hilary Bullock wrote, while you were dreaming of the future or regretting the past, the present, which is all you have, slips from you and is gone. Wisdom helps us to see wealth clearly. The teacher is singing the praise of wisdom in verses 11 and 12. And he says that wisdom's as good as an inheritance, an advantage for those who see the sun. It's a lovely way of saying, you know, those that are still walking on the planet, those who see the sun. And when we hear the word inheritance, we need to think of land. The Israelites were given land, a portion of them for their inheritance uh, within the promised land. The land was a permanent possession in the Old Testament. And in an agricultural society, land meant food, land meant security, and land meant stability. But even with an inheritance and with money, there's still the possibility of misuse. And the teacher points out that the advantage of wisdom is that it preserves those who have it. Again, the ESV translation goes that step further and it puts it like this. Wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. The teacher's not talking about eternal life here. They're talking about life on the earth. That we should be grateful for the rich treasure of wisdom that we've inherited. But again, with our eyes firmly planted in an age of grace, we can recall words that Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. We've got that um, ability to, to apply these verses to the reality that we're living in the age of grace, that Jesus has walked the planet, gone to the cross, and, been, um, and, re- and he's been resurrected. We move now into part three. Who is in control? Is this question that the teacher gets to. The teacher is now reminding us to consider what God has made. All these things that we've been looking at are often completely out of our control. We know God's to be a sovereign God, 
who's made all things. And in verse 13, the teacher asks this rhetorical question, who can straighten what has been made crooked? The comparison between something straight and something crooked is simply that. It's just a comparison. We don't have to debate what the word crooked means here. Literally, it's the thing how God made it. If God wanted to make something straight, then he would. But interestingly, we don't see too many straight lines in nature, do we? That's something that we like to do. God doesn't work like that. I came across a really interesting quote while I was reading for this sermon, and it goes like this. Learn to cooperate with the inevitable. Learn to cooperate with the inevitable. I love swimming in the ocean. There's something about the salt water, the waves, the sand in your toes. I've been known to go for a swim at the beach when it's raining, when it's cold, when it's miserable. I'll still get in the water and go for a swim. And there's something that happens when you swim in the ocean. There's the push and the pull of the swell and the currents. And when those waves come into the shore, that water naturally has to cycle back out. We call these currents rips. They're taking all the water back out to the ocean. So if you go swimming in the ocean, swim between the flags. The flags are there for a reason. It's not the, the calm spot. It's usually where there's a few waves coming in and because the water's coming in. If you get caught in a rip, the water's going back out. You don't swim against the rip. Don't do that. If you swim against the rip, you'll run out of energy. You'll start to sink. You'll flounder. You can't swim against the rip. You've got to swim with it. You've got to swim against it. Learn to cooperate with the inevitable. You've probably heard the, the serenity prayer that was written in 1934 by Reinhold Niebuhr. It's been adopted by the Alcoholics Anonymous as part of their program, and it goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept what cannot be changed, courage to change what should be changed, and wisdom to know the difference. This is a life skill. This prayer is not found in the Bible anywhere, but this is a life skill. And it's talking about wisdom that will help us see life clearly. There's a balance that describes here between serenity to accept and courage to change. Sometimes we get stuck trying to change things that we can't. We can use a lot of energy swimming against the current when we really should be going with the flow. In verse 14, in the passage this morning, the teacher reminds us that we need to accept and acknowledge the good times with happiness. Recognize those good times for what they are. And as we've already talked about, there's going to be bad times too. What does the teacher say about these bad times? God has made the one as well as the other. This is a perspective that we're probably not used to. In our lives, we have blessings and burdens. If we only had blessings and no burdens, we'd be imbalanced. And if we only had burdens and no blessings, well, we'd still be in balance and that'd be a horrible life. We have blessings, we have burdens. Well, why does the teacher say no one can discover anything about the future? Because God has given us enough blessings to keep us happy and enough burdens to keep us humble. A friend of mine who teaches English in a school in Ethiopia, she uses social media every day to post the things that she's thankful about. Sometimes you can tell that they're finding a blessing in every day has been really difficult for her, but she looks for it. And these are the days that she's thankful for even the smallest of things. There's a reality to life on this planet that each day will present its own challenges. Some days your life are going to be better than others, and some days it will not. We have the incredible promise in Scripture 
that uh, the, this is in pre-resurrection from Lamentations 3.22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And we have Jesus' own preaching from Matthew 6.25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, he says. Our heavenly Father feeds the birds of the air. How much more valuable to him are we? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Matthew 6, 33-34. So to close out this message this morning, I want to flip open to James chapter 1, verse 2. Another really hard passage in the Bible. But it fits with this verse in Ecclesiastes. James chapter 1, verse 2 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. This joy that James is meant talking about here, it's not in the house of mirth kind of joy that we, we read about earlier. It's not that sort of uncontrolled, undisciplined laughter. This joy is a, a spiritual, enduring, complete joy in the Lord. This testing of our faith produces perseverance. Perseverance is a life of faithful steadfastness against troubles and afflictions. When life doesn't go the way you think it's going to go, the Christian can lean on faith, trust in God and believe that God is in control. That question that we asked right at the start, God is in control? Yes, God is in control. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you are in control. We don't understand, Lord, what that means at times. We don't understand why things are happening. But please give us trust. Give us the faith to trust in you and the trust to know what's happening, that our, our future is secure in you, Lord, that you've given us your son, Jesus. He died on the cross and he rose again. We thank you so much for that gift, Lord, that you've given us. And as we read passages like these, we remember that you are in control. Amen. I